Hello and welcome to our Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I'm your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, hey, we have a great show for you today. I have with me Dr. Randall Rouser. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rouser is a professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary of Kairos University. He is the author of about a million books, uh, including What on Earth Do We Know About Heaven? and Progressive Christians Love Jesus Too, just to name a couple. He is with us here today. Welcome, Randall. Hey, good to be with you, Eric. Not quite uh, 50 million or whatever, but more like 14 books. <laughs> that, <laughs> is, uh, that, is quite, that is quite a lot of books. So, yeah, I recently uh, learned about you from a friend of mine who wrote an article about a debate that you had had with uh, uh, Doug Gruthius, um over uh lisa childers um book and he was basically standing in for um elisa sort of uh representing her what he thought her position would be and that was a a really interesting uh podcast we'll put we'll throw a link uh in the description of that so people can see that as well um of course elisa wasn't present uh she sort of isolates herself from top tier progressive Christians, um, you know, so that she doesn't have to be held accountable to the things she says about them. And uh, I, th I think many of our listeners here are aware of Elisa and her book, another gospel and, and the things she stands for and stuff like that. But for those who um, may not be as familiar, um, could you uh, provide us just like a little brief synopsis of, for some context for us of who she is and why she wrote this book? Yeah, sure. So Alyssa Childers is daughter of Chuck Gerard, who was a, a, of the Jesus people in the early 1970s. He had a rock band called Love Song. And so she she grew up within a fundamentalist Southern Baptist, I, think, I don't know Southern Baptist, but a, a fundamentalist uh, Protestant church in Southern California. That's the way I would label it. And certainly I think that's borne out in her book. And then in the early 2000s, she was part of a pop group called Zoe Girl who achieved some success uh, within the evangelical subculture. Uh, and then after that, she got married, I think, to the drummer of the band, if memory serves. And then they started going to a church in the late 2000s. And retrospectively, looking back, she says that was a progressive church. And the pastor of that church invited her to be part of a group of Christians within the church who were going to take a, a hard look at their faith and sort of do the process that we would might call deconstruction of kind of thinking through some of the things that they've grown up with, understanding evangelicalism or Christianity to be, and then rethinking some of those things. And after four months of that process, she pulled herself out of it and she felt that her whole faith had been shaken. And she looks back on that now as, uh, as, a, as a very negative experience, viewing that pastor as having nefarious or malicious intent to undermine the faith of Christians. And that uh, initiated for her a process which I would understand to have occurred now to early 2010s and mid-2010s of doing a lot of reading and exposing herself to sort of conservative Christian apologetics, mm. uh, like you often get in what we call the Biola School of Apologetics. Yeah. And then eventually she wrote this book in 2020 called Another Gospel, published by Tyndale. And it's um, 
uh, sort of a response to progressive Christianity. But what she says is progressive Christianity in the book, her central thesis is that it is another gospel and another religion altogether. And they have another Jesus. And uh, throughout the book, at several points, she also makes assertions about the malicious or negative evil intent of progressive Christians who are seeking to delude or to lead uh, good Christians astray, rather like wolves among the sheep. And she name drops. So she names people like uh, Brian McLaren, uh, Brian Zond, Peter Enns, uh, Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, you know, sort of the mm -hmm. usual suspects. Uh, and her book has taken off. I mean, I probably wouldn't have bothered to respond to it if it didn't have, I think it's like 3,000 reviews on Amazon. So it's been enormously popular. And as of this month, October 2022, her next book is just, is just coming out. And she also has a popular podcast and she's all over the place. And like you said, um, she really, in terms of her interaction, she interacts with friendly audiences only, so far as I can see. Mm -hmm. um, now, maybe part of that is I'm not sure what her educational background is. So far as I can surmise, she's uh, done some auditing of seminary courses. I'm not sure that she has a master's degree, uh, but that's, so, so I'm not sure in terms of her formal education, but that's where she is. She's become very significant in the last few years within conservative Christian apologetics. Yeah, and to be clear, she does consider herself an apologist. She uses yeah. that title. So, I mean, if you're going to use that title, then you really do need to kind of stand up there like all the other apologists do, uh, William Lane Craig, you know, all those folks and and yourself even, and tackle the big issues, you know. Um, so let's, let's bring you in this conversation now. So um, it, you saw that she was getting a lot of... Um, favorable press uh for this book that she did what what initiated why did you decide that you needed to get involved or that you wanted to be involved and write this response well i had a particular conversation with a friend of mine who has a um who has a popular show on youtube and and that individual had hosted her on their show and so i i interacted with them because you know, it's like she was getting a lot of exposure, but not a lot of pushback. And I raised some issues. This is back in March of this year, 2022. I raised some issues with this person. Um, and some of the, the points I was making is that she really conflates her conservative evangelicalism with mere Christianity. So, for example, when a progressive or some other Christian would reject penal substitutionary theory of atonement or they would reject the theory that hell consists of eternal conscious torment of the lost. She would say they're rejecting Christianity. They're rejecting the gospel altogether. And I'd say that's a very dangerous conflation to make, to confuse your conservative Christian commitments with the broad Orthodox Christian tradition. That's sectarian and ahistorical and dangerous and so unhelpful. I raised these issues with this person who had hosted her, and I just didn't really feel like, like they were really granting the points I was making. So I felt, you know, it, there's, there's, it's important, I think, to have a more sustained response to Alyssa Childers. So I set aside a month in the spring of this year, wrote the book in response to her and Progressive Christians Love Jesus Too has been out since late April. One, one as well, one feature of the book is that I interview Peter Enns in the book and also get his feedback because he's one of her major um, targets. And I know Peter fairly well. So um, I also invited him into it. Yeah, so um, she really does uh, sort of like pick her uh, people in a 
I don't know, I guess, attack or pick on. And Pete Enns is one of those people. Uh, she does a fairly uh, substantial job in trying to attack him. It does sort of remind me, though, this conflation thing that you talk about sort of makes me think that she might not be having the education to that's just because some of the facts that in the way that she reasons and some of the facts that aren't really facts um, that she comes up with in her book. And you do a great job of pointing a lot of those out. One of the things I love about this book is, uh, and now someone, I, I'm going to bring up some of the comments that I have read on Amazon uh, regarding your book um, because I find them interesting and somewhat insightful into some of the problems the book itself actually raises but um, I found the book very funny and just like the sort of tongue in cheek that you use uh, to enter sort of like keep it light. But at the same time, you do a good job of showing how serious these accusations are. Um, do you consider yourself a progressive Christian? I mean, for years, I've called myself a progressive evangelical. And I think right there is a reminder that evangelical and progressive are not exclusive categories. Right. This is a continuum. And that is why uh, one reason why it's so unhelpful to treat progressive Christianity as this monolithic category, as if we can talk about progressive Christianity as another religion. No, it's a continuum. Uh, and just as, I mean, it's a point I made in my debate with Doug Groteis on Unbelievable, is as I was pointing out, I can give you several examples of evangelicals who are historically unorthodox, if not heretical in their theology. And I can give you several examples of avowed progressive Christians who are fully orthodox in their theology. So if that's your criterion, well, then we need to just drop thinking evangelical good, progressive bad. It's a continuum. And what you really have to do is just talk to people and find out where each individual is coming from. Yeah, I... Um... Uh, have argued for a long time now that progressive Christianity is not a denomination. It's not antithetical to evangelicalism. You'll find progressives in evangelicalism. Um, I define uh, progressive Christianity as sort of a milieu of um, uh, doubt and uh, research and just trying to people who are struggling and deconstructing and they just need a sort of a place. And I get that you talk a little bit in your book about not wanting to, um, define or how progressives don't like to define themselves as progressive. And, and I get, and I get all that, but it is helpful for some uh, contextual and even just having conversations and sort of differentiating them a little bit from uh, mainline evangelicals or mainstream uh, church in general. Um, so having, uh, having that as, cause you do talk about that at the start of the book and define, trying to define progressive Christianity and I think that's a a a, a good uh, a good way of looking at that. I want to read a little section here. Uh, it's very brief on page thirty five, and have this sort of serve as um, one of our first uh, conversations here because I find this really really interesting, and I'm curious to to get some more um, uh, clarity from you. So it's on uh, page thirty five, and it starts. How is it that Childers can show a clear awareness of the problem of heresy hunting, but then conveniently exempt herself from the offending behavior when she perfectly fits the profile? On the one hand, one could say that it is, this is simply predictable manifestation of Childers' inability to introspect about her own position or accept insight from those in the, the otherized outgroups. So um, 
I completely agree with that, but it is a that is an issue that is far reaching, I think, and is more, I think, a an example of problems within evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism, um, than it is peculiar uh, particular to uh, her in general. I, uh, it's sort of like there exists this theological or doctrinal dissonance I, is the only way that I can think of it. Like, why is there this lack of introspection um, within the community there, do you think? Yeah, I think that there are many reasons for that. It's a complex question. Um, almost 30 years ago now, Mark Knoll wrote this book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. In the beginning of the book, he says, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't one. <laughs> In other words, evangelicals just don't have a history by this, he's speaking North American evangelicalism, not the kind of evangelicalism that goes back to 18th century Methodism in England or something, mm -hmm. but the North American sort of post-fundamentalist 1920s onwards expression of evangelicalism has a pretty thin intellectual theological history. And as a result, I mean, that just doesn't allow for a lot of critical introspection. Um, so for, for a long time, evangelicals, and fundamentalists, the, the categories overlap a fair bit in North America, and they were largely an anti-intellectual or counter-cultural movement. That's begun to change, but but still there are some deep-seated impulses there. Like one of them is this tendency to think in very binary black and white terms, to think about the world out there, uh, the world of uh, danger, of falsehood, of lies and evil and the devil, and then we have the truth here. And if you buy into those categories, that's going to frame everything and the way you interact with other people. And it makes it very difficult to recognize when other people have legitimate insights because you've already categorized them, as I said, in, in the form of that out group. Yeah. So, and that's a great transition into my next question, actually. Um, so it's sort of like a two-part question. The, the first part is, um, why do you think that, uh, so Binary thinking is obvious. It's not uh, particular to evangelicalism, as it's sort of just this uh, response to modernism. It's just the modernist worldview. But with evangelicalism, with you know, solid within modernism, um, why do you feel like, or why do you think they feel like they have to think that way? So why why isn't God more dynamic um, in his interaction with with humans? Why does it have to be this binary, black and white? way of thinking well i um probably because they've bought into and by by they I, I mean this is not of course every evangelical but we're talking about broad trends here yeah i mean they, they've bought into a particular understanding of christian faith for example they tend to have an over intellectualized understanding now ironically this doesn't mean depth intellectual depth necessarily but it just means a reductionism about christian faith to think of it as the sent to doctrines for example. And so then you've got to get the doctrines right, uh, because those become the identifying marks for who you are as a Christian. Um, the relationship is carried by your doctrinal assent. So um, if you're going to be in with God and part of his family, you have to have the right doctrines in the right order and so on. And so it becomes, I think, a very, again, an intellectualized understanding of Christian faith, rather than understand it as a, a holistic communal relationship, and you are part of that community, and then doctrines arise out of that communal relationship with God and one another. 
which is, I think, a very different conception and a much more holistic one. But but if you have that uh, evangelical, intellectualized, individualistic conception, then it makes you very vulnerable. And so you have to develop these defense mechanisms in order to sustain that kind of faith. So I have a practical question now as it relates to this. The practical, and you do a lot of debating and, and have a lot of conversations like this. So um, how do you, how does a person, we'll just say, how does a progressive Christian have a uh, meaningful conversation when there's such a difference in the way that, that the conservative evangelical, again, stereotyping a little here, and the progressive Christian think, like they, their foundations are so drastically different. Is there, can they even have meaningful dialogue? I think that this is part of a more general problem uh, in society today that we are becoming so polarized, we're, we're losing the ability to talk to one another. And I think one of the the biggest problems there is contempt that people have for one another. So if you as a progressive or an evangelical are contemptuous of people who disagree with you, you're not going to listen to them and you're not going to be able to learn from them. So I think that the first step for each one of us is to strive to be a sympathetic listener, to understand where the other person is coming from, to, to try to figure out um, in terms of charitable listening or steel manning rather than straw manning, how can I make what they're trying to say or communicate look as strong as it possibly can be? And and where it isn't, and, and where I think there are real problems there, how can I communicate to them in a way that doesn't alienate them or lead them to retrench more fully into their perceived error, but rather opens them up to further dialogue? And uh, boy, those are those are tough things. But I think it's uh, with anything, it's like the more you do that by getting out there and talking with people you disagree with, hopefully the better you get at it. Yeah, you know, one of the things I noticed in the debate um, with uh, uh, Doug Gruthius was I appreciated, I was a little nervous. I don't really like watching the debates uh, very often because they tend to be very contentious and and it, that sort of thing just bothers me. But in that one, it, I really felt like there was a humility on both ends and that there was a... Um, that That was a meaningful conversation where a lot of people could learn a lot of different perspectives and ideas from that. And I just wish that we could have more of that. Yeah, you know, the the, the word argue, I like to tell my, my students when I'm teaching, that the word argue comes from a root that means to shine forth. And so while people often, they don't like arguments because they think in terms of creating heat rather than light and creating conflict rather than concord, nonetheless, in its truest sense, an argument should be an opportunity for the truth to shine forth in a mutual expression of disagreement and different perspective. And I do think that uh, for the most part, we achieved that in that conversation. So yeah, I, I think that um, I don't mind debates. I, I enjoy doing them <laughs> partially because I don't mind a little bit of disagreement and I come in expecting it, yeah. but also because in their best moments, they can be opportunities for the truth to shine forth. Yeah, yeah. And again, I want to urge uh, my listeners to to check that out. I think that there's a lot of uh, good benefit from uh, taking a look at that. Um, so you're, um, I sort of, when I read your book, divided it into two sections. The first section we sort of talked a little bit about, um, and that's uh, understanding binary thinking, black and white thinking. Um, that's sort of um, sprinkled also throughout the rest of the book. So it's not like a sharp cut. Um, you, you go on to talk about it more even in the latter half of the book. But 
there is a, a question that I had um, in reading the second part of the book when you talk a lot about truth as it relates to progressive Christianity, because Elisa talks a lot about uh, she really gets hung up on subjective truth and absolutes and stuff like that. And again, that's a product of her binary thinking, but in her modernism, a good job in, in uh, helping the reader understand that truth is not, is there are many facets to it. And um, she is specifically referring to um, a particular kind of truth. And there are other ways that one can ascertain truth as well. But I think in somewhat in that, there is um, a lot, at least when I was reading it, uh, a loss of focus as to what exactly per, you, um, you're saying that progressives believe in response to what Elisa is accusing them of in regards to truth and absolutes. So what do the progressive, what do progressives believe? Well, it would uh, depend on the progressive, but uh, what I do in the book is I give examples from people like Rob Bell, who she specifically criticizes as having an anti-realist or relativist conception of truth, where truth is simply something that you create by individual will. She actually gives an illustration at one point in the book where she, she describes this view by saying, I, I like bacon, but I can't just make bacon healthy by wanting it to be healthy. And yet the, the view then that she credits to people like Rob Bell is that they have a view of truth like that, that simply by willing something to be so, I can make it so. And, and that is just absurd. I mean, Rob, there's no question if you just take a look at what Rob Bell actually says, this is in his book on scripture, he's not endorsing the view that people just will things to be true and they are thereby true. He's far more sophisticated and also far less radical than that. Um, what he is recognizing is epistemic humility. Uh, and that is pretty core to his understanding of truth, which is that we all have a limited, fallible, finite grasp of truth. So while the truth may be out there to be discovered uh, in some sense, uh, nonetheless, um, our, and we, we have an opportunity to discover it, but our grasp of it is always going to be fallible. It's like th this gets into this whole thing about scripture where um, you can say, you know, to talk, talking to the conservative evangelical, I'll grant, you know, the Bible may be inerrant, but your interpretation of the Bible is not inerrant. And what people always do in terms of this, they fall into the trap of conflating their understanding of truth with the truth itself. And yeah, you may have it correct, you may have the truth, or you may be wrong, and you have to be open to being corrected. And so so that's really the, the gist of what I'm getting at there. So tell me if you would um, agree with the statement um, that progressives don't deny absolute well i should say not progressives let me rephrase that um people who hold progressive christians who hold to a more relativistic view of truth okay don't necessarily deny that absolutes exist what they're denying is our ability to perceive those because um you know if god is absolute truth then uh, and we're finite we're approaching god as subjects and we're looking at something that is holy uh, we are not able to, in the same sense that God is able to, understand that truth. 
Yeah, so so again, I think that we're here, we're, we're kind of moving between the categories of epistemology or knowledge mm -hmm. or you know, understanding how we, how we have knowledge, how can we can know things or have reasonable beliefs, and truth itself, which is a metaphysical objective relationship. Um, and so uh, the truth is, I would say, so there are different theories of truth uh, in terms of philosophy. So you've got the anti-realist theories, like you've got... Uh, coherentist theory of truth or a pragmatic theory of truth. Most people, vast majority of people, however, hold to some kind of basic realist theory of truth. They might call it a correspondence theory, or it might be something called a deflationary theory of truth, but that's getting into the weeds in terms of the philosophy. The, the main thing to appreciate here is that I think the vast majority of people do have this sense that there is something out there that I want to understand and be in right relationship with, but we see darkly as through a glass, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. So uh, we don't have what you can call a God's eye point of view. We don't see things as God does, as it were. Uh, our, our grasp of truth is finite. Um, and so I think that that should be at, at the center of our understanding of epistemology or our, our understanding of, of uh, knowledge when it comes to the grasp of truth. Now, I would say that there are also areas of truth that are relative in terms of, of the truth conditions for those statements is relative to a knower. For example, the famous common example is like, if I say vanilla ice cream tastes good, well, that's a statement relative to me. It may not be true relative to you. It doesn't mean that there's no, there's no truth about it. There is a truth about it, but it's relative to the individual who thinks it tastes good. So taste seems to be a truth that is relative to knowers. But uh, ice cream is colder than fire is is not uh, something relative to knowers. It's an objective truth. But again, I'm, I mean, that's a, a little bit in the weeds, perhaps. Yeah, this this issue, though, is far reaching in that it also extends to our, you know, scripture and um, case, uh, situations <laughs> of talking about inerrancy and uh, different things like that, too, again, which she confuses with her own. Um, beliefs yeah, and doctrines. I mean, inerrancy, and stuff like that. just as an aside, I defend a particular view of inerrancy, which I think is useful, uh, which I call divine authorial inerrancy. Uh, and what I mean by that is that God is the primary author of Scripture. And as a result, I think anything that's in Scripture, God has placed it there without error. He knew what he was doing. And so for the purposes for which God has given us Scripture, it is properly there. And so you don't pick the, the canon and say, well, I don't, I don't think this should be in there, but this should. And that's how inerrancy functions for me. But the standard view of inerrancy among conservative evangelicals attributes inerrancy to um, the human author. And I think that that's just an indefensible view, frankly. But even, even more than that, I think it's just also, if you focus too much on that, it just creates a kind of skewed approach to the Bible, a very reductionistic one, where the Bible is just about... Um, getting the right propositions. And of course, right. it's far more than that. I mean, Karl Barth famously talked about the strange new world in the Bible as being something we are invited to enter into. Again, it's not the reductionistic notion that we just assent to a series of doctrines or propositions. This is a formative life into which we are invited. So uh, I'm going to bring up a an interesting uh, comment that I read about your book. You never, you've apparently never read the book of John is what he says. It's Obviously, you've read the book of John, but his point is, is that, and this is about uh, beliefs and um, whether or not, what is the foundation of the faith, of our faith? 
is it beliefs? Is it, I mean, you're asserting that it's Jesus, and I would agree with that. But in many conservative evangelical circles, it often is their theology and their doctrine, right? So, um, what he's referring to is John 3.36, which I'll read real quick here. Uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So, he's hung up on, and there are other you know, verses you could quote, but he's hung up on whoever believes. Now, that made me think a little bit about how evangelical, conservative evangelicals must view the word belief, because really, um, when they think, when they hear the word belief, they must just immediately associate that to like theology and doctrine and stuff. But um, how, how would you um, have that conversation with an evangelical, with a conservative evangelicals to explain why their beliefs aren't the foundation and Jesus is the foundation and how that, that verse connects to that. Well, so if he's using that verse in the way that it sounds like you are saying he's using it, and I think he's proof texting it and misunderstanding what Jesus is saying here, because uh, to go to James 2, 19, the demons believe and shudder, Right. Yeah, but they don't get any brownie points for simply having some affirming some right propositions. I think Jesus makes clear time and again that when he talks about believing in him, that means doing his will. Yes. Right? That, that means uh, following him, taking up your cross. Uh, that means uh, the worker who says, doesn't say, I'll go out to the fields, Father, and he doesn't. But it's the one who, even if he says he's not going to, he ends up going out. That's the one who actually believed in him. Uh, it's it's the one who, uh, in the sheep and the goats, uh, the one who does all these things to others, to, to those who are naked and homeless and in prison and so on, and helps them. Those are the ones that are counted as sheep, not the ones who assented to a set of doctrinal propositions. So if that's that fellow's understanding, I don't think he's grasping what uh, Jesus is speaking about there. Well said, well said. Um, a final point I want to uh, to bring up in your book is, and you sort of use this as an example, and I think there are a lot of examples like this that can be used, but I'm glad that you use this particular one, and that is related to related to penal substitution and why, um, and this is part of it why I think that she may not have the a fuller understanding or the fullest understanding theologically of these various concepts. And here's part of the conflation that you were talking about uh, between theology and doctrine, and you use the penal substitution as an example. So penal substitution, uh, well, we can speak about it in different ways. If we speak about it in the way that she is, then it's really functioning as a theory. And what a theory is, is it's an explanatory framework. Now, interestingly, I've heard her recently give um, inter an interview in which she disputed the very idea of the word theory. And because she interpreted the word theory as, and now this is my interpretation, but clearly this is what she means. She interpreted it as meaning something like a flimsy conjecture. So, you know, like sometimes people say, yeah, well, I got this theory about why mm -hmm. the Twin Towers collapsed in New York, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's not how the word theory is used in theology. And I think it's just indicative of the degree to which she really doesn't understand the subjects that she's talking about. Right. So a theory is a, is a theoretical explanatory framework for facts. In, in science, for example, you have the theory of plate tectonics, which is a theory to explain the features on the surface of the Earth, uh, because the Earth is understood to be a series of interlocking plates. 
In atonement, what you have are different theories as well. And one of them is penal substitutionary theory, which seeks to provide the overarching explanation for God, how God reconciled us in Christ to be um, uh, some, a concept of double imputation, that Christ died in our place, penal substitution, took on the, the suffering that was owing to us, and in return imputed to us his righteousness, and thereby satisfied the Father's wrath against sin. And this is a theory of atonement, which uh, people invoke to try to explain all the biblical data of atonement. Uh, I don't think it's a successful theory of atonement, but whether you do or not, the main point to recognize is that the Christian church has never required any theory of atonement. Uh, the, the creeds don't require you to adopt a particular theoretical framework to understand how Christ reconciled us in order to uh, agree to the fact that he did reconcile us. And this is her big mistake. Uh, is to saddle everybody with having to believe a particular theory of atonement, and one for which I think there are significant biblical and philosophical and ethical objections. When you do that, you simply create unnecessary stumbling blocks to faith. I mean, Paul said you know, the, the, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block, but I don't think we need to add further stumbling blocks to the stumbling block of the cross itself. And for many people, requiring assent to a penal substitutionary theory is just that kind of stumbling block. So um, I think that there has been a, um, uh, especially within evangelicalism, you have the sort of Billy Graham style of sharing Christ with people, we'll say, like coming to know him and having salvation and certain things like that, which is largely based on penal substitution. And I think that the confusion comes in where, uh, people look at something like that and say, how can you deny the blood sacrifice of Jesus? Because it's so ingrained in their uh, their worldview, their way of thinking about how everything, because if you take, then if you take that away, how do you talk to people about Jesus as be, like people being sinners and that they're forgiven and there's grace? And, and so that's this thing that they can't even seem to comprehend. Yeah, uh, people like like the the popular song in Christ Alone on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I mean, that is a penal substitutionary framework. Um, one thing I would suggest is that there are two different ways to think about penal substitution. One is, as some do, they say that that we have to reject this altogether; that it's simply an errant view, and it's a harmful view. Um, the other way to think about it is that it's it's it, it's a metaphor of atonement. Um, that is based upon understanding temple sacrifice. Paul and others, John perhaps, uh, if they were affirming something like penal substitution, it was because they were looking for a metaphor drawn from the temple sacrificial system. But there are many other metaphors of atonement as well. And so uh, you can also look at those different metaphors and have an enriched understanding of God's reconciliation of us in Christ. Right. So in, you know, any denomination or you know, belief system, you're going to have people on the fringe. Um, and no doubt there are people within progressive Christianity, just like evangelicalism, who may hold the crazy beliefs. But that doesn't mean that we um, are going to take those on the fringe and, and make that the representation of the group as a whole. And I think until we get some, uh, have some more intellectual integrity um, within these conversations, um, that you know, we need to, if we really care about the truth and really care about having these dialogues, then we need to be able to um, have conversations without proof texting people that, 
uh, is saying that people believe certain things that they don't. And and I think that's why it was really important that you had a relationship with Pete Enns because you really go to bat for him in this book um, it, because she really uh, proof texts a lot of his stuff. And you're like, wait, if you just go back and read it in its context, uh, you'll see that's not a, that's not at all what he's saying. And in fact, some cases he's saying the opposite. Uh, yeah, so so the, the point is that um, you can always give a specific uh, example of, well, this person meets my prejudice, prejudicial stereotype, but that doesn't justify the prejudicial stereotype, right? Saying that uh, uh, immigrants are lazy and then finding an immigrant that you believe is lazy doesn't justify the general stereotype. Finding a person who's unorthodox and progressive doesn't justify the general stereotype that progressives are not Christian. I just want to come back to when you said like about people be believing crazy things. Um, the thing is, like um, growing up in the conservative evangelical tradition, there was often this focus on you kind of jump on people if you consider them a heretic or something. Um, and what you end up with often is people who who just tell me what to believe, and they're kind of fearful about believing the wrong thing. There's, it's a very fear-based, and I think often a superficial understanding of Christianity, where you're like, J just tell me what I have to believe, and, and I'll be okay. And in some ways, I'd, I'd rather have a person who, yeah, they make some doctrinal errors along the way, but they're willing to be honest about their questions and doubts, and they're not satisfied with oversimplified answers, so they really wrestle with things. Uh, and yeah, they end up with some errors along the way, but would I rather be the person who's fear-based and simply give me what I need to believe and I'll believe it? I don't know. I'd maybe rather believe uh, to rather be the person who's willing to wrestle with it. I mean, this comes back to the basic nature of Israel itself, right? Uh, the term Israel means to wrestle with God. And I think there are a lot of people, they may end up with some wrong beliefs along the way. And, and I don't diminish that, but I also say if it comes out of an honest wrestling with God and a pursuit of truth and a desire to know God, then they may be in a lot better position than we might otherwise think. Yeah, very well said. Good way to uh, to enter podcast too. Hey, we have uh, Randall Rouser with us. Uh, he wrote the book "Progressive Christians Love Jesus Too," and I'd like to say, as a progressive Christian, I too love Jesus. So, uh, thank you for going to bat and um, really uh, representing um, because there's not a lot of people out there who I think would do this sort of thing. So uh, I don't see a whole lot of book responses to people and what they do. So um, hopefully um, uh, we can help to propel this book. It's a great book. Everybody should go out and buy it. And uh, yeah, so thanks for joining us today. Eric, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great.